Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Hello, Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our show. Today's topic is going to strike a chord with so many of you, as it did with us. We are talking about ambiguous loss, and we are so fortunate to have the woman who coined the term here with us today as our guest. Since 1973, Dr. Pauline Boss has studied ambiguous loss, taught university students, practiced as a clinician, and trained family therapists, psychologists, counselors, and humanitarians around the world to help individuals and families suffering from the trauma of ambiguous loss and its grief that has no end. She has published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles and chapters, as well as eight books translated into 17 languages, and has received the AAMFT Emeritus Award for Extraordinary Work in Leadership in Marriage and Family Therapy. Now, Dr. Boss is Emeritus Professor at the University of Minnesota, She is known worldwide for developing the theory of ambiguous loss and as a pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress management. Her latest book, which we are going to talk about today, is titled The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change, which was such an eye and heart opening read. I'm so excited to talk to her. Welcome, Dr. Boss. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Okay, so we'll start at the beginning. What is ambiguous loss? Well, ambiguous loss is simply an unclear loss. Uh, There's no death certificate. There's no certainty um, that the death has occurred. Uh, It leaves people in a sort of limbo. There are two kinds. The first is physical and the second is psychological. Examples of the first kind of physical ambiguous loss would be soldiers missing in action, children who were kidnapped, Um, bodies that are missing due to war, Holocaust, and so on. More common examples of physical ambiguous loss would involve divorce and adoption. Um, The second kind is psychological ambiguous loss, and the most uh, frequently referred to one is Alzheimer's disease and the over 80 other kinds of conditions that cause dementia. The person is there in front of you, but gone, not there. Uh, So more more common examples would be people who have addictions, who are there, but not there, or people who are preoccupied with their devices or gaming. Uh, And uh, you see that in a restaurant when people are all looking at their devices, they're there, but not there. They're psychologically absent. Mm. How did you come to to be studying ambiguous loss? Well, there are essentially two answers to that. Um, The first one that I thought of when when asked that question was that as a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin, I wrote my first paper, which was Psychological Father Absence in Intact Families. Mm. That was my very first um, academic paper. Um, But at the same time, I was studying um, theory development and sociology, and my professor said, Pauline, it's about more than fathers. Raise it to a higher level. So instead of my lifetime work being about fathers, uh, it became ambiguous loss. That's the more general term I came up with. 
And that can involve anybody who's psychologically or physically absent. In retrospect, as I've gotten older, I realized that I grew up with ambiguous loss. And so it was perhaps uh, in my uh, makeup from the beginning, I'm the child of an immigrant uh, from Switzerland and my mother's parents were also immigrants and we lived in an immigrant village. So everybody was from someplace else and pining, homesick for the old home, the old country, the mountains and so on. So I think it's no wonder I came up with that term eventually in graduate school. Wow. Well, Mags and I have long believed that anxiety is a huge component of the grieving process. In fact, we agree with the work of Claire Bidwell-Smith, who says that anxiety is the missing stage of grief. So, of course, we see the connection between ambiguous loss and anxiety. It seems in some ways that ambiguous loss can be even more anxiety-provoking than kind of your standard losses that we think of. I don't know if you would agree with that. Oh, no, definitely. I agree with you. The, the outcome of ambiguity is uncertainty and anxiety in our culture. Let me add that in our culture, because we are a very mastery oriented culture as opposed to more Eastern cultures with sort of flow with what's happening. We don't, we feel like we need to solve every problem. And if we don't, we, we are a failure. Our society does not like losers, it likes winners. Uh, we, we, of course, are very good at it. Uh, we've, we've put people in outer space and cameras farther in outer space than they've ever been before. That's awesome, unbelievably awesome. Our, and, and of course, our scientists gave us a vaccine quicker than ever before. Uh, so I like the fact that we're a mastery-oriented culture. But when it comes to problems that have no solution, like death, like ambiguous loss, somebody's missing and you can't find them, or they're addicted and they're not getting better. It creates a great amount of anxiety for us. The more mastery oriented we are, the more anxiety we will have from ambiguous loss. Yes, that makes total sense. Our community has really been grieving especially hard since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I think that's true for probably many, many of us in our culture. And many of our, our followers are confused by their feelings, especially if they didn't have anyone they know that died from COVID. So with your permission, I would like to read a partial list of ambiguous losses that we've experienced due to the pandemic, which is on page five of your book. Is that all right? Because I think well, please it will help please explain... Do. Um, our collective grief, grief a little bit and answer a lot of questions that we've been getting about why am I feeling so much loss or so much grief when I didn't know anyone who actually died from the disease. Good point. So on page five, uh, Dr. Boss says, uh, here's a partial list of ambiguous losses due to COVID-19. Loss of hopes, dreams, and plans for your future. The loss of a way of life that had promised fulfillment and satisfaction loss of certainty about safety and health for yourself and family, loss of routines, loss of playdates for young children and at, at school learning for students, all students regardless of age, loss of parental time and freedom to go to work due to the need for at-home schooling for their children, loss of ability to be with a loved one who is hospitalized or maybe dying, loss of traditional rituals of mourning and burial, not knowing where the body of a loved one may be, 
loss of ability to celebrate or mourn major life events such as births, graduations, marriages, deaths, etc. in community with others. And there are there are other things that you list as well, but uh, that was a particularly powerful part of your book for me as I was reading it because I realized that this is it. This is exactly what our community is feeling. And our community is a microcosm of the larger society. Right. So this is what we're all feeling with, with the pandemic. So I think this is such a, a really important time to talk about ambiguous loss. Yes, I think people are naturally feeling sad, feeling anxious, uh, and not knowing why. Because as you say, they didn't have a death in the family. But we had many, many losses. I call it a pileup of loss. Mm. And, and I even go on to say that uh, in, in the situation we've been in in the last three years, because still, still there is turmoil now as well, and the COVID is still with us. If you weren't anxious, uh, it would be unusual. Um, in other words, anxiety is a normal outcome of an abnormal situation. You don't always need medication or to go to a doctor or a psychologist for this kind of anxiety, because if you understand the source of it, sometimes you can control it better. Mm. That the anxiety is not coming from your psychic weakness. The anxiety is coming from an absolutely crazy environment we've been in in the last three years. The culprit is the environment, the context right now, both COVID and political upheaval. It's not your weakness. Yes, and I would argue anxiety is never your weakness. That it's, you know, if anxiety is creating so much dysfunction in your life that your world has shrunk, that is not weakness. That is a disorder that needs to be managed. I want to talk for a few minutes about this idea of closure. Because we hear that bandied about so much in the grief, in the minimal grief conversation that our society permits. Um, why do you think our culture is so obsessed with closure? Well, in fact, uh, you you mentioned it in uh, your sentencing and the min- minimal grief uh, discussions in our society. We don't like to talk about death. Um, Becker wrote that book long ago, The Denial of Death for Our Society. We don't like to talk about loss, as I said. Uh, and we don't like, to, therefore, to talk about grief or all the other outcomes of loss. Um, we are a society that likes productivity and winners and uh, success. Travel the world, you will see that other people do not see death this way. And as I traveled the world, my eyes were opened about how other people handle it. In Japan, for example, they feel that the ancestors are still with them and still watching over, for example, the people that were washed away in the tsunami. So they have ancestor worship. Uh, in Mexico, they have the annual day of the dead with celebrations at, at the cemeteries. Uh, I could go on, but in America, in the United States, uh, we sort of want to forget about it. And, and we say, we'll give you a few days to grieve and then get over it. Right. That's well, all. I read somewhere that three days is the longest bereavement that we're, that most corporations will offer employees. And that would be for the loss of a primary, quote unquote, person in your life. So I think that's a parent, a child. I don't think I don't think it would count even at 
uh, for a sibling or grandparent. I don't think that would be considered primary. So, you know, our country, definitely the, the ethos is that you got to get over it fast. Yes. Yes. And by the way, the sibling relationship is one of the most difficult because the sibling relationship is the longest human relationship there is. And it is so uh, discounted. Um, But to get back to um, the myth of closure, yes, closure means get over it. And closure means like, it's a perfectly good word, I say, for closing a road after a snowstorm or a flood. It's a perfectly good word for closing a store if they go out of business or for closing a business deal like a real estate deal. Perfectly good word. So I think it's misused. It's a misnomer um, because we think that with death and grief, you can close the door on it and the pain will go away. The more you seek closure, the more the pain stays with you in its raw state. And so the current research on loss and grief is that people need to find meaning in it and can live with the loss. It will be like oscillations, they use that word, which means uh, in and out, perhaps like ebb and flow of of, uh, water and so on. And these ebbs and flows get farther apart as time goes on, but they never stop. Um, For example, my sister uh, loved uh, to wear red dresses and heavy perfume and uh, lots of strong hairdos and so on. She was, um, you noticed her coming down the street. And so when each, Whenever I go past a store with a red dress in the window, to this very day, 20-some years later after her death, I think of her and have a sadness of missing her for that moment, maybe even a tear in my eye. That is normal grief. It's not debilitating. It doesn't stop me from functioning, but I'm remembering. And, so you haven't, and you haven't closed the door on I your relationship with your sister and that right. you are you welcome the idea that a red dress or a fancy hairdo would would bring back a vision of her for you. And that could yes. even, even if it makes you have a tear in your eye, it could still be a meaningful experience, even if it brings exactly. And it's it's both a tear in the eye and a smile. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is that both and thinking. You know, you see the joy and the sadness in things rather than just one or the other. If you just see the joy and loss, it's a denial. If you just see the sadness in loss, you're kind of stuck there if that's where you stay forever. So you do both and thinking, you know, I both lost my sister and remember her. Right. Two things can be true. That's the paradox of loss. Yes. And it oddly enough, lowers stress and therefore lowers anxiety well it increases your tolerance for uncertainty exactly right which is what exactly. i mean if, if if anxiety is a response to uncertainty on, on some level then when we become more comfortable with uncertainty when we don't feel that we need closure or precision or precision or mastery as you said when we allow for there to be some ambiguity then of course, that will that will definitely relieve some stress. And I and I, I sometimes get angry with how our culture treats death because we really 
make it awfully hard for people to find the meaning and to be okay with both and thinking and ambiguity. And, you know, I, it's, I, I talk about the fact my grandmother, who was my person in life, passed away uh, 10 and a half mm-hmm. years ago. And she is with me every single day because when I go for my morning walk, I listened to Donna Summer, who was one of her favorite singers. And just this morning, one of the Donna Summer songs came on and I said, oh, Grammy, you love this one. And it was and it's it was it's so important to me that I don't have to, quote unquote, get over her. Right. She can be right with me, even in moments where it might make me sad. She can be with me at any time of day, you know, and, and, and our our culture really shortchanges people when it doesn't encourage that. You know, we, yes. we say don't talk about the person who died. And I find that in our community, when people start telling us about someone that they're grieving, the first thing we say is, please tell us about that person. And tell us their name. Yeah. Tell us, name their, tell us about yes. them. Yes. We want to know. We want to yes. we want to keep that person alive, too, because that there's meaning there. And memorializing is very well known in the literature as lowering the stress of people who have lost something. Keeping the door open is, in fact, the right way to do. And don't ever, ever say to someone who has lost someone, I'm glad you have closure. They are very hurt by it. And even when you hear about, on the, on the TV, you hear about uh, court trials where someone was murdered and the murderer is convicted. And then the media person will say, and now the family has closure. No, they don't. They have justice. Right. In other words, it's a misnomer again. It, it's the wrong word. They have justice, but they will forever remember all this. And they'll remember the lost person. They'll remember the trauma of it. I was in New York uh, visiting professor at Hunter College. Um, uh, That's where Maggie went to social work school. Oh, good. It was. It's a good school. Uh, shortly after 9-11, maybe a year or so, maybe it was two years. Um, at any rate, um, a, a reporter, I think, from Bloomberg came to see me in my office on, on uh, September 11th anniversary date and said, why aren't we over it yet? And he actually had tears in his eyes. And I said, because you're trying to get over it. When 9-11 occurred and so many people were missing, it was very hard on that community. They wanted people to say, yes, they're dead. Well, if you have a missing person, you will not, you will not say they're dead. That's expecting too much from those people. And, and so they had to live with ambiguous loss. To this day, they're over near not quite half of the people who lost loved ones still do not have evidence, DNA evidence uh, that their loved one was actually dead. So New York has learned to live with the not knowing, with the ambiguity and uncertainty. Can't get over something like that. No. And, and we get that a lot when we coach anxiety sufferers and they'll say things to us like, you know, when, when will it go away? For for the large majority of us, anxiety sisters, uh, it doesn't. I mean, you yes. learn to live well with your anxiety. You learn to, to stay in your own driver's seat so that when anxiety shows up, it's there, but it doesn't make your decisions for you. Right. There is no closure for most of us when it comes to anxiety. And that's the hardest it. thing for people yeah. to, 
But we need to be able to name the source of our anxiety. So this is where I go back to stress theory. So the ambiguous loss theory is stress-based, not medical-based. And the core idea is you can't cope with something unless you know what it is. You need to have some meaning for what is causing your stress and anxiety. We've just had with COVID is over two years of ambiguous losses. Mm -hmm. Uh, The ambiguity was on every level. At first, it was even about the virus. And it'll drive us crazy in this society unless we can put a name on it and say, oh, this is what it is. The ambiguity is the stressor. It's not my fault. Right. What we can name, we can tame. That's good. Well said. So part two of your book is focused on how to live with ambiguous loss, how to manage it. And you begin that discussion with the concept of resilience, which is very highly valued in Western culture. It's built into everything these days. You can see it um, in terms of, you know, it's in every meme on social media. There's countless books about how to build your resilience. What I was so taken with with your book is that you definitely see the value in resilience and it's part of your of your way of living with ambiguous loss, but also you have some caveats. And I was wondering if you would yes. sharing those because I think they're so important. Well, first of all, resilience with ambiguous loss is important because most frequently the amb- ambiguous losses don't become clear ever. They stay ambiguous a lot of the time, which means that if you can't fix the problem, you have to change your way of thinking about it. And that's the resilience that we're talking about here. And specifically for me, it's increasing your tolerance for ambiguity. Now, there are caveats, as you said, for example, resilience, the idea of resilience and competence was begun by studying children in Hawaii who lived on the street, poverty-ridden children, homeless. And so they found out that some of those kids actually grew up and did well. That's great. But we should also know that they shouldn't have to be that resilient. They shouldn't have to live on the street. They shouldn't have to live in poverty. So when we we unfortunately expect the same people to always be resilient, poverty-stricken people, people in the bad neighborhoods that don't have all the uh, grocery stores and so on they should have, Uh, And so we have to be careful. African-Americans hate the term. They are, in fact, rewriting it. And I'm glad I'm I'm mentoring that, in fact, and cheering them on. Um, Their point of view is that if you you have to be resilient all your life on guard about your son's going, driving a car or going out on the street, about being raped, about being robbed, about not having enough um, healthcare and so on, that eventually uh, you become overburdened with being resilient and it, it takes a toll on your own health. And so the premise is that this may be the explanation about why the lifespans of black men and women is shorter than with white men and women. So I encourage you, your listeners, to um, listen uh, to uh, Dr. Shalandra Bryant's writings, rewritings on resilience, 
And so we believe in resilience, but we must know that not everybody should be assigned to the group that has to be resilient because it wears people out. Now, on the other hand, if you have a loved one uh, who requires caregiving, they're either terminally ill or have dementia, that's tough work. Mm. And so you, we, their resilience is very necessary in order to stay healthy for a job you have to do for sometimes several decades. And again, society needs to help those people and not take them for granted because they also die at a rate higher than their same age group. Yeah, I, I definitely think that you're right about that. I heard you, I think it was, I, I listened to you do a podcast with another host. I can't remember which one it was right now, but I remember you said that you think of resilience as a tree bending. I wrote that in the book, actually. Um, and my editor asked, why are you talking about trees when we're talking about people here? But in fact, trees tend to be used as an example of resilience across cultures. Um, one example I didn't use in the book, I used in an earlier book, was that when the pioneers crossed the plains to go west, if a wagon wheel broke and they had to make a new one, they picked a tree that was very weathered, that had withstood storms because it had been resilient and therefore was stronger than a tree that had never been tested. Well, that's true of human beings too. Uh, If we bend like a sapling, if uh, heavy force comes at us like the last couple of years, we had to be flexible and do things to stay safe. We couldn't have our own way all the time. We were at the mercy of the storm like a sapling in a storm would be. And if we were flexible and bendable, we more likely would survive. In an earlier book on stress, I used the example of suspension bridges, an engineering example. And as you know, suspension bridges have to move in the wind in a storm, otherwise they'll break. It's true of us too. Uh, We'll break if we aren't flexible when Mm -hmm. tragedy hits us. Yes. Yes. And I, um, I heard you say once that uh, some folks, it's the fact that they can't bend and that they can't be resilient. That makes it hard for the rest of us when they're people in power, let's just say, or when they're people who can make decisions that affect us. We saw that. We, we saw absolute thinkers. They weren't both and thinkers um, who said, um, it's my freedom. I won't wear a mask. I won't take the vaccine. That's a very brittle way of being in time of um, disaster, which we were in with COVID. And ultimately, that won't survive. In order to survive long term, and I'm talking across the generations, you have to bend like the sapling in a storm. Yes. I'm going to wrap this up by asking you, 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 you offer six guidelines for living with and managing ambiguous loss. And they're, they're all really great and helpful and everyone should get the book so that they can read them and learn them. The one I want to end the interview talking about, I think, because it to me has the most relevance for anxiety sufferers would be the one where you suggest that we normalize ambivalence. 
Yes. And ambivalence has um, been used in psychiatric um, circles as uh, problematic. I'm using it in a sociological way. So I'm, I'm talking about the ambivalence that cause, that is caused to you by the social environment, like COVID, like having a loved one who's sick or missing physically or psychologically. Uh, and I focus also on, um, uh, it causes mixed emotions and some of them are good and some of them are anger. So it's joy and anger are mixed up. Uh, and, and also guilt comes into it. And I, I wanna just say something about guilt and shame. With guilt is a normal outcome of ambiguity. Uh, if you're taking care of a parent with Alzheimer's, um, you're never going to feel like you've done 100% of what you need to do. And if loved ones die, it, I think it's just normal to say, I should have, I could have, why didn't I? And I could have said this. I think those are normal reactions to, to the loss. But shame is not. And shame has, aside from guilt, shame has in it self-loathing. Uh, I hate myself because I didn't do this. I hate myself. I don't deserve to live. I should die also. So I think it's very important to know which of those and to what degree you have those ambivalent feelings. And partially, I think many are a normal reaction to an abnormal kind of loss, ambiguous loss. And we just sort of smile and say, I can live with that, those feelings of guilt. But if you have feelings of shame about it and self-loathing and self-esteem is way down, then you need to get professional help uh, to, to come to a more reasonable level where you're not hating yourself for what happened. Yeah, Magsim, I always say you can live really well with anxiety, but not with shame. That's right. Shame is the one, one. the one thing, you know, that, that we really, that's our goal is to destigmatize uh, to do what you suggest, which is to normalize ambivalence and both and thinking that two things can be true and sometimes they're paradoxical. And they are often, more often than we think. Because human beings are such complicated animals. And I think we shortchange ourselves when we don't acknowledge that and say that we can think paradoxically. Yes, we can. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald had a quote about that, uh, that it's a sign of intelligence for people to be able to hold two opposing ideas in their head at the same time. We've been talking with, or I've been talking with, because Max is on vacation, I've been talking with Dr. Pauline Boss, whose latest book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in a Time of Pandemic and Change, is an excellent read for all Anxiety Sisters. It's not only helpful in terms of dealing with ambiguous loss and unresolved grief, but also with anxiety. I want to thank you, Dr. Boss, for coming on our show and for chatting with our listeners. It was fun. Thank you. Some announcements. We are going to the International OCD Foundation's annual conference from July 8th to 10th in Denver, Colorado. It's such a great gathering, and it is geared as much for sufferers as it is for clinicians and other experts in the field. It's Mag's and my favorite conference. And so, as always, we'll be sponsoring and exhibiting at the conference, and we would love to meet as many Anxiety Sisters as we possibly can. So please come to our booth. We'll both be there, and there will be free goodies. 
You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. As always, if you have feedback, especially compliments, questions, or an idea for a podcast, please email us. And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would so appreciate if you left us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, Anxiety Sisters, don't go it alone. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.